you wrote that humans have a 4,000 year addiction of printing monetary energy. You have zero hope to fix the addiction by having a different human in charge. The only fix is to create a mathematical algorithm that cuts humans out of the loop via game theory. Top contender, Bitcoin. Big deal. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Luke Broyles, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thank you very much. <laughs> Pleasure to meet you in Miami, and now this is just as much of an honor to be on your show. Yeah, so. it's great to have you. Uh, we met in passing at Bitcoin Miami. I think you caught me when I was preparing for my keynote, and um, I remember there was a I was re rehearsing the final line, which kept bringing tears to my eye. <laughs> and so you came right around when I was doing that. So it was funny. You, we first met, I was crying. Funny story. Uh, <laughs> I, I do have a strong impact on people. So <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah that, that was, that was, that was really cool. Sorry, just to interject. That was really cool. Cause I, I watched so many hours of your show and, and you know, had so many hours of it listening and to like, you know, see you practicing and then meet you right after that. That was just super cool. So, um, yeah, yeah, that was, that was a great event. Um, and yeah, it's always cool to meet all these Bitcoin family members we have on Twitter to then meet them in real life. It's always, always a cool experience, uh, which is great about those conferences that you, 
Bitcoin Twitter seems very antagonistic and what argumentative, I guess, but then you meet Bitcoiners in real life and it's much more friendly and enjoyable. So I highly recommend going to a Bitcoin event if you haven't been to one yet. Um, just by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are a, a Bitcoin thinker, I would say a philosopher, uh, an author, you write for Bitcoin Magazine, and also an investor. And today I thought we would wrap philosophical a little bit about Bitcoin, what it is, the history of money, uh, maybe get into morality and, and religion a little bit. And to kick us off, you have this great pinned tweet on your Twitter profile, which I will read, and then I'd, I'd like to work with you to unpack a bit. You wrote that humans have a 4,000-year addiction of printing monetary energy. You have zero hope to fix the addiction by having a different human in charge. The only fix is to create a mathematical algorithm that cuts humans out of the loop via game theory. Top contender, Bitcoin. Big deal. So that tweet captures a lot of the lesson we're trying to explore in this show. It's like, what, what's wrong with the money? How can we fix it? How significant are the problems created by the monopolization uh, and central planning or corruption of money? And to what extent does Bitcoin promise to fix them? So very dense tweet, a lot packed in there. Um, can you help me to unpack some of this in a digestible fashion for my audience? Sure. Um, I think when it comes to what most people hear about Bitcoin, they think of a number that goes up or they think of it like a stock or like an investment, you know, like any other thing out there. And, you know, to be fair, um, I understand why people think that, but the rabbit hole, let's say, or the journey that many people, many people through your show, many people through books are learning about Bitcoin come to is the epiphany of that tweet epiphany that this thing is different. And I, I love history. I've loved history my whole life. I love reading history. And to me, it's very clear. It's always been very clear that one of the primary ways at which humans take advantage of other humans or exploit other humans, uh, slave other humans, is via distorting the money of that society. You know, it, it's very easy for us to read about events of war in history or disease or or things like that. That that's that's easy for us to understand because their names and dates, it's easy to test. There's So there's an easier incentive to promote that kind of learning. But I think there's some things in history that are undertaught or underappreciated. And I think one of those is monetary history. And I think another part of that too is technological paradigms, but we'll, we'll get to that more later, I guess. Mm. But I, I think when one steps back and they stop watching the news and they stop thinking about the day, think about the day, the week, the month, the quarter, and they look back at history, I think it becomes very clear what that first part of the tweet says, that for the last 4,000, 3,500, you know, however many years you may define, for thousands of years, the way at which humans have been able to exchange monetary energy, aka money, our, 
financial and economic savings is through various sets of information that are controlled by human beings. Some are much better than others, but at the end of the day, everything's been able to be controlled by human beings, which inevitably means it will be controlled by human beings. Mm. So obviously you can go all the way back to Egypt or, or Rome or, or you know ancient China or whatever, you know, you have things like gold, salt, grain, silver, you know, things that are analog, let's say, things that are physical, that take energy to produce. We have used those as backing or supporting the kinds of money of the society, or in fact, they are the money themselves. And because it's analog, people have been able to control those, you know, what's often jokingly called bigger gun diplomacy, mm. you know, whoever has the bigger weapon or the, is able to exert the larger force, often through violence, it doesn't necessarily have to be violent, but that's often what it descends into. Whoever can exert the larger force gets to control resource, gold, you know, water, land, farming land, oxen, you know, whatever it is we've been able to control that. And the, the same thing is true with our form of money today. You know, we have fiat currencies that are controlled by human beings, boards of human beings. And the the idea of Bitcoin is not that this is some other thing that humans can control and, oh, you can buy it and get rich quick and you can make a bunch of money. The idea is it itself is the money. The idea is what if we were to find a way to store that purchasing power outside the control of the human being so if you have mm. fiat or you have another analog commodity you know that can be put in control of human beings and so it will and so the only way to circumnavigate that human distortion and corruption is to take humans out of the loop mm. entirely and when i often tell people especially those that are just hearing about bitcoin for the first time that people like henry ford or nikola tesla or hayek or, or friedman um, or, or, you know, many others of the 20th century, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have or so people of the course century predicted Bitcoin decades or, or even a century before Bitcoin was created. They have trouble understanding that because, you know, when we think of Bitcoin, we think of numbers and computers and, you know, cyberspace, you know, we, we, it's, it's abstract. So it's hard for us to identify. But at the end of the day, what those people are predicting was that they were predicting this idea that eventually humans would innovate, would, would innovate into finding a way to have this discovery of detaching monetary energy, aka money, aka, you know, the series of ones and zeros we use, away from being able to be controlled by a single human being. And so I think when most people hear me talk about Bitcoin and say that it's going to go up, it's going to go to, you know, X price, they hear someone saying, oh, Bitcoin's a big deal because it's going to make you 10 times richer. While that's true, the the, re, the real reason Bitcoin's a big deal, and I've been saying this now on, on Twitter for eight months uh, here since January 2023, the reason it's a big deal, first and foremost, is because it detaches that human control from money itself. Mm. You know, Bitcoin's going to become more valuable, but only because it first is a more moral system, and because first it is more secure. You know, a system that doesn't require human oversight it doesn't require human intervention is inherently more secure than one that does. Mm. You know, if I were to, you know, do, you know, calculus or algebra for you on a piece of paper with a pencil, mm. that system is more corruptible than a calculator, you know, 
granted, you have to make sure the calculator works, but assuming right. the calculator works, either it works or it doesn't, it's either a zero or a one. And assuming it works, it's inherently a better system because even if I'm the best math genius in the world, I'm a human being and I can either make a unintentional mistake and get the wrong answer, or I can intentionally manipulate in my equations and lie to you and deceive you. So, so that, that's, that's the message I've been sending. That's the message of that tweet is that Bitcoin's a really big deal and it's going to become exponentially more valuable over the coming years, decades, and possibly centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily because it is a technological innovation that then discovered that immutable digital scarcity that humans cannot alter or edit. And that because it is that more moral, that more finite, infinitely finite system, it's inherently more valuable in the same way that a calculator is more valuable than a pencil and a piece of paper. And in the same way, you know, I give this metaphor too, that and I think sailors said this metaphor and perhaps you have too. So uh, you've probably heard it before, but for the listeners is that if you think of this from an engineering perspective, because that's what all technology is, it's just engineering better innovations is that we can think of up to this point in human history, last 4,000 years as having a series of ships that have uh, a hole in in their hull, so they're taking on water and they're slowly sinking. You know, like take gold, um, or you could take ancient Roman coins. Uh, you could take paper currency, fiat currencies from the Dutch, the British, or the Americans. And all these forms of storing energy have that kind of energy leak. And the problem is that as the value of that energy goes up, as the value of that gold or that fiat currency or whatever goes up. The incentive increases to dilute it. You know, right. if everyone is demanding a house and house prices keep going up, what's my incentive? My incentive is to build more houses, to provide that value for other people. And so when it comes to money and and the value that money is going up, the incentive suddenly becomes to produce more of that as much as possible. And that's good. That's healthy. That's the nature of prices. They communicate that. But what does that mean? That means that consistently you know, we're dumping more gold onto the market. We're dumping more houses on the market. You know, this, I often, you know, get told it's no better than cows. Well, you can't store your wealth in cows, you know, cows Mm. breed, you can have more cows and it's so easy. The cows will do it for you. (laughs) So you you can't store, you know, and, and it's like, Oh, but yeah, but beef has intrinsic value. You can eat beef. And that's true. But as the value of these things go up, we have the incentive to produce more of it, which ultimately is good for society. But the idea of Bitcoin is what if you have this thing that you can hoard, that you can save and that you can store. And no matter how far price goes up, humans aren't able to create more. If that thesis is true, then Bitcoin's the best preserving mechanism of purchasing power in the world. It is the one ship with no hole that's taking on water. And so it's floating on the surface and everything else relatively is trending down against it mm. uh, over time, you know? And so that's what I often try to explain to people that, you know, again, they have their worldview. And so when they hear me talk, they hear me say, Bitcoin's going up and they think of it like everything else, like, oh, real estate goes up, Bitcoin's going to go up higher. That doesn't make sense to them because I think, okay, house I can live in, you know, beef I can eat, but Bitcoin's going to go up and it's out of thin air. And it, when when in reality, the argument is that, because it's not analog, because it's this digital thing, it's just information, mm-hmm. a unique set of information. That means that unlike everything that's analog, it actually can be finite. And if it is actually finite, then everything else, like I said, all those ships that 
fall down. So I think it's really hard for people to understand. And I, I think that's why people like my tweets, because I've just done my best to concisely put it in 140 or whatever it is <laughs> characters. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's the basic idea and promise of Bitcoin is that for thousands of years, every form of money has been able to be monopolized. And whenever there is a monopoly, it is inevitable that humans will mismanage it accidentally or more often intentionally distort it to harvest wealth from other people in a zero-sum game. Mm. And so the idea of Bitcoin is, what if we take humans out of the loop entirely, meaning that we can accurately price everything else in terms of an immutable ledger for, for the first time ever? Like, it, it's a really big deal. So, mm. um, yeah, and I think that's hard for people to hear at first, but when they give it 10 hours, 100 hours, 1,000 hours of thought, it makes sense to them. And then, you know, we bifurcate and that's how you have all the Bitcoin crazies and everyone mm-hmm. else. But pr- pretty much people either love Bitcoin, they hate Bitcoin, or they're open to Bitcoin, but they don't really know what they're talking about. Those are the three groups, really. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, no, lots of good stuff there. I, I mean, it seems very obvious if you look out onto the world that, and Sailor's done a great job of expanding upon this, that life is energy, right? Everything is energy life naturally seeks to conserve energy for itself over time, right? Bears get fat and then they hibernate all winter. You know, all that adipose tissue is stored energy. Squirrels bury nuts, you know, so they can eat later when they can't find them. That's a form of stored energy. Uh, Humans accumulate capital savings, you know, food structures, anything we need to survive. Um, So there's this natural demand a very basic level for life itself to conserve energy over time. And for humans, purchasing power is one of the most important forms of energy, right? Because it's a, it's a way to have an instrument that can be used to acquire anything that humans can produce. That's what, so you, you're tapping into the productive energies of the human race by conserving purchasing power, essentially, you know, Sure, you can build a house and own a house, but there may come a time where you don't need a house in that place at that time, or maybe you have two houses or whatever it may be. So holding monetary savings is something that gives you the widest set of options, right? You can you can use that money to acquire whatever you might need, no matter what the circumstances warrant. And to that end, it appears Bitcoin is the best means we've ever had, right? Because to store purchasing power means to store something that is widely demanded and of at least a high relative scarcity, right? That it's going to, there's going to be less of this thing, this monetary instrument relative to the goods and services that humans are producing such that the purchasing power or price of that money keeps going up as humans produce more stuff. Um, and so, and the, I guess here's where the counterintuitive part is, is that contrary to all other goods and services, houses, et cetera, the more we create of those, the better off humanity becomes, right? We have more wealth. We have more stuff. We have more stored energy, however you want to call this. But money is the one exception to that rule because money lays claim to all the stuff, but it is not the stuff itself. So if you produce new units of the money, you're just diluting the purchasing power per unit. You're not infusing the economy with any new any new forms of capital. So it's the only commodity that when we produce more of it, we don't actually improve 
living standards or human flourishing. It's the contrary. It's the opposite, right? We're actually diluting uh, the saving, the purchasing power of savers to benefit whoever's producing the new money. And so that's a weird, twisted incentive that there's a there's a massive incentive to try and control money because then you can just you can use it to steal purchasing power from savers if you can control it. So is Bitcoin then like, I've thought about this a lot too, that as you said, even with gold, right, it has industrial demand. It's not just money. Is Bitcoin the invention of a pure money? Is it for the first time we have something that is actually only useful as money and useful as nothing else? And if so, what does that mean for the world? Does it, are we, is this really going to be like a before Bitcoin, after Bitcoin paradigm where we'll look back on this historically and think, you know, we had all these approximations of money before Bitcoin. And then finally we discovered something that's a pure money. Um, and, and what does that do? What does that, where does that take us? What kind of future does that take us into? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I've asked myself that a lot over the last couple of years. I, I think, the wheel is a good metaphor here is that, you know, society can progress and get better technologically if we have square wheels and then it can progress more if we have less square wheels and more round wheels, you know, maybe they're ovals or maybe, you know, and, you know, things can get better and better, but until we have that perfect circle of the wheel, you know, achieving that is let's say an order of magnitude harder than having a square wheel, but achieving that is, a fundamental before and after moment, like you just said. Mm. And so I, I do genuinely think that I, I do think that I do think that over you know, the last few thousand years, we've had forms of money that are better than others. Not obviously it's not like all monies that aren't Bitcoin are equals. Like there are clearly some that are better than others. You know, clearly gold is better than boulevards, you know, clearly the U S dollar is better than the peso. Uh, but they're all, imperfect wheels i do think bitcoin is that kind of thing that it's like oh okay for the first time we have a form of money that is completely devoid of any other utility besides securing itself Mm. you know that that's that's a problem with gold or oil or or houses or stocks you know we use all those things as money we use oil as money you know people Mm. say buy oil and to preserve your purchasing power because everyone uses oil and that's true or same thing with gold you know buy gold because it's been around for thousands of years and you know whatever and it's, it's used it has utility or whatever and houses you know and i think we're so um detached from what money is you know hopefully your show rectifies that but well i think we're so detached that we think that money has to have this utility but i, I would argue that money is the technology that prices in all other technologies and if money mm. has that kind of utility then it's no longer just communicating. It's no longer just an even board for society to communicate exchange mm-hmm. rates and prices to each other. Now there's that distortion of, of demand. So if we take oil, for instance, and we look at, let's say, the lockdowns of 2020, if you're treating oil as your money, well, then dependent on certain factors here or there, you know, maybe there's a war in the Middle East, or maybe there's a lockdown, or maybe, you know, some new invention makes this thing that needs oil 10 times more efficient. So we need less oil. So now if you're using money is or now if you're using oil as money, it's no longer just this way which we communicate prices with each other completely neutrally. Now it's biased. It's biased towards 
things that require oil. It's biased towards pricing in those. And so it's not really neutral. There's that bit of distortion. So, yeah, I do think your question is correct. I do think this is a before and after moment. I do think people will look back and be like, yeah, there was before Bitcoin and there was after Bitcoin. And perhaps I'm biased to think that because I own Bitcoin. But I, I really do think that's the case because it's like before Bitcoin, we never had a marriage, let's say, of the analog world and the digital world mm. in monetary form. You know, mm. that's what Bitcoin is. You're, you're marrying the abstract of ones and zeros with electricity and computing power. So it's mm. like a bridge there. We've never had that before. Bitcoin is the first time we've had an asset or a commodity that is finite with extremely high certainty, with extremely high confidence. We've never had that before. You know, real estate is scarce, gold is scarce. Again, some things are more scarce than others, but in the same way, it's like a wheel can get less and less of a square, but it's either a circle or it's not. And likewise, no. an asset is either finite or it's not. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, it's the first time we've had that. It's, it's the first time it's been uh, digitally needed. And there's so many firsts with Bitcoin. I do think that it is the first money. And, mm. and you know, Gresham's law and many economic, you know, laws, money trends to one. If Bitcoin is the first real money we've had, it's, to me, it seems to be the only probable one. And if mm. there is a replacement for it, it's so far into our technological future that, you know, I, I don't even know what could replace it. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think, I do think it's a paradigm shift. And, and again, people, they hear me or you or others talk about Bitcoin. And they hear people saying, oh, buy Bitcoin because it's going to go up, which is true again. But it's it's because of that paradigm shift that it's so valuable. I often give the metaphor, um, the horse and the locomotive. You know, if we think of the locomotive, we can look back now 200 years later and say before the train and after the train. Because before the train for thousands of years, we used meat machines that converted hay into transport. And then suddenly, for the first time, we had steel and, and iron and, and steam power and, and use coal and wood. We, we used things that were not living to transport. Like, that's a paradigm mm. shift. And suddenly, now we can't, now we can travel in day by night. And now we can travel longer than the range of a horse. And now we can travel, we, we can move 100 times the mass at 10 mm. times the distance at twice the speed for a tenth the cost. You know, mm. and Clearly, the locomotive is a paradigm shift. And, mm. and because our brains take a long time to adjust and because we grew up in a certain technological paradigm, it's my personal concern <laughs> that Bitcoin is causing more change in the world at a more rapid rate than our brains are able to keep up. You know, mm. I, I think most of us are carrying this locomotive thing and we're trying to think of it in terms of horse. And it just, it's simply not, it's simply not convertible. You know, the, the locomotive solves problems that you can't even conceptualize yet. You know, I mean, most people, and they did, they looked at the train and said that, you know, whatever, because why would I need to go to another country? Why would I need to travel, you know, 40 miles? You right. know, like, why would you do that? You know, the, the, the train solved problems that were not even problems in the horse standard mm -hmm. because the horse standard technologically was so ancient that those problems didn't exist. You know, like, the majority of business to, businesses today solve problems that did not exist at the time of the Roman Empire. And in the same way, I think people look at Bitcoin and they're like, yeah, but what problems does it solve? What, what, and, you know, it, I, I think 
the majority of the value of Bitcoin becomes obvious to someone when they're thinking from the future, looking back instead of looking backwards, trying to overlay it on the future. Mm. And so that's why I always try to approach Bitcoin from that first principles perspective and explain that Bitcoin is that paradigm shift. And because it's that paradigm mm. shift, that's why it's becoming valuable, not just because it's the new hot thing, um, you know, not just because it's the new trend. Like this is much more than a fad. This is much more mm. than something you buy to get rich. But mm. then, of course, the irony in that is that once you understand it, then you buy it to get rich. And, and ironically, the people, you've probably seen the mean, uh, Robert, I know probably a lot of people watching have, but it's like the bell curve of mm. you know intelligence or or whatever or on one you one end you have people that are like bitcoin's going to go up and on the other end you have people like bitcoin's going to go up and in the middle you have everyone that's like it can't work for x y or z reason yeah. and i i think i think what even that meme miss is that the people on the one end are much more bullish than the people on the other end you know someone that doesn't understand bitcoin but is bullish bitcoin will say bitcoin could go to a million dollars. It could go to a hundred thousand. Maybe even someday it could go to five million dollars. But I think someone on the other end of the spectrum is like, yeah, Bitcoin's going to hundreds of millions, billions, or or more a coin in mm-hmm. in a in a correct time horizon, of course. And it, it, it's just funny to me. It, it's like the Dunning Kruger effect um, on on steroids to a certain degree. And yet, you know, with everything else with the Dunning Kruger effect, it's like. You have the spike up where they're absurdly optimistic, then then they you know flatten out and they become more realistic. But the funny thing with Bitcoin is that it's kind of like the Dunning Kruger effect, but you become more optimistic the farther you go. I, I don't know. That's that's interesting mm. thought experiment. Obviously, every person is different, but um, but yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I I think you're right. I think it's a paradigm shift. I think people look back and view it as before Bitcoin, after Bitcoin, before Bitcoin, you had 140 different political currencies that you had to barter between in order to transact. Mm. And the political currency that was backed by the nation with the biggest gun mm-hmm. got to determine the value of all the other political currencies. That's what we've had for hundreds of years, thousands of years, if you include other things besides fiat currencies. Mm. Bitcoin's the first time that we don't have to barter between commodities or between fiat currencies in order to price in the innovations in society. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I'm kind of like that. So you could say fiat currency or political money in general creates this system of partial barter in a way that we, you know, we had gold, which is the most politically neutral money historically, but obviously because it's physical politics still play a big role, right? You can kill someone and take their gold or invade a country and take their gold. And that, that system of partial barter is a friction on the free market. So if you're using that analogy of the wheel, it's kind of like a jagged wheel, right? It's not perfectly circular. It's got, you know, long linear parts on it. And so when you're trying to drive it over terrain, it's just not efficient. It's not effective. It creates a lot of bumps and, <laughs> and pain that wouldn't need to be there if you had a, a circular wheel. And, you know, it's funny too, you're talking about problems that we can't even conceive of. I think when automobiles were first invented, they called them horseless carriages, you know, just attesting to our inability to understand how significant a technological innovation can be. Now, you're still thinking in in the terms of the old frame, right? You're thinking about, oh, horses are what 
we use for locomotion. This is like a horseless carriage. And that's really what people are doing when they think about the Bitcoin price is like you're thinking through the frame of dollars as if the dollars will be the significant frame in the future. And I think is when you really get down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you're like, oh, wait, we're not going to think in dollars anymore. It's going to be a new frame. Bitcoin is the new frame for uh, for looking at economic output and economic uh, results, right? Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And the wheel, I've been thinking about this as a, maybe a stretch, but I'll think out loud about it. When I took physics in college, I learned that velocity is a product of speed and direction. So if you spin something in a perfect circle, you basically have infinite velocity because it's always changing direction, right? At every micro movement, it's not the linear direction is constantly changing. It's moving along a curve rather than linearly. So we have this way to create infinite velocity by just spinning something on a central axis. And the wheel, you know, being a perfect circle, it doesn't have any of these linear spots on it. So it's ideal for dealing with a constantly changing and unpredictable terrain, right? Like no matter what shape the terrain throws at the wheel, well, the wheel is optimized to go over it because it's nonlinear. It has no linear components. It's circular. Exactly. And so this very simplified integral instrument for dealing with the uncertainty of terrain we call the wheel is like one of the biggest deals we've ever invented, right? We, it's on everything, right? It's on your car. It's on your luggage. It's on anything that needs to move, right? We're still using wheels today. The design hasn't really changed at all. It's perfected. It's just a very simple, integral instrument. And so it, it, by way of comparison, maybe like no matter what, no matter how uncertain or unpredictable the terrain, you know that the wheel is going to be ideal for dealing with it. And sort of similarly, like no matter what the economic conditions are, you know that money is going to be useful. But Bitcoin is like the first perfect circle of money, right? There's no, like the political frictions we described as being these chunks in the wheel or, or linear portions, like we, we remove all that. And so you just have this perfect money that's that lets you overcome the frictions of partial barter that political money causes. So if maybe Bitcoin is like an economic wheel, whereas all other monies were this non-circular <laughs> wheel by way of analogy. And um, yeah, it's hard really that if you get to that level of realization, you're like, okay, well, what does that mean? That means everything we've created so far has been created with political partial money, an approximation of money. What can we create with a pure money? And 
that the world looks really different, really interesting. Um, I, I love that analogy. I, I, I've never heard it put that way, but I think that's, it, it, it's perfect. It, it, it's a great analogy because that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin, you know, like I was saying, oil is, can't be perfect money because it's biased towards things that use oil. Yeah. Gold is, you know, gold is pretty good because we can't use it for much more of the jewelry and, and you know, computers, um, which yeah. is a modern phenomena. But, you know, that's why gold works so much better than, you know, copper or others are one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think political currency, it's AKA cash, dollars, pesos, lira, is that, that the problem with those is that they are not a wheel, like you're saying, like you're describing so well, and that they have those linear edges. They're, there's not there's not an infinite number of points on the circumference or, or those linear edges. So a political currency unit is distorted to the state. And because the state has monopoly over that imperfect wheel, they're incentivized to make the wheel actively worse over yeah, time. And right. so that's why they're even worse than oil, worse than gold, worse than real estate. You know, the political currency unit is distorted to have the wheel decline and, and get worse and more distorted over time. So, hmm. yeah, I think that's a great analogy you have. Yeah, and then you, in your tweet, back to your tweet here, you conclude with the only fix is to create a mathematical algorithm that cuts humans out of the, out of the loop via game theory. Now, game, I for me, like my Bitcoin epiphany, I think it was largely rooted in the study of game theory. And I, I guess Bitcoin critics actually make fun of us often. They're like, oh yeah, let me guess, game theory is the answer blah, blah, blah. Like they're trying to discount it as, I don't know, something, which the name is not that great, actually, game theory. It's something that's observed very widely in all, like the animal kingdom, the human kingdom. So maybe we could just unpack game theory a little bit. Um, and the game broadly understood is really any situation where there can be winners and losers, right? Where there's some something to be gained by some at the expense of others. Obviously, there's different forms of games, right? There's positive sum games where you can have win-win situations like the economic division of labor. And then there's zero sum games like theft, right? One person has to lose for another person to gain. And a strategy in game theory is really just any method for making decisions under such conditions. So what is it about when you say creating a mathematical algorithm that cuts humans out of the loop via game theory how do you unpack that for people that don't understand game theory per se? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, you mentioned sailor and life earlier. I, I think before talking about humans, if we talk about life in general, like how do organisms defend the energy they have? How do they defend their right to reproduce? How do they defend their water sources? How do they defend their shelter? How do they defend their energy? It all comes down to exerting as Lowry would say a brute force physical cost mm. onto another organism you know that's the honeypot problem that's that's basically what we're describing you have a hive of bees and they have inside something that's very valuable something like honey it's extremely valuable you mm. know before we before us humans came along and we invented artificial sweeteners like honey was the sweetest thing and like it's also healthy for you you know like honey is like liquid gold in the animal kingdom mm-hmm. and so how do bees defend that it's not from their you know, fuzzy legs or or stripes. <laughs> it, it's from their stinger. Mm-hmm. And so the game theory of a beehive is that you have to have basic basically a decentralized, you know, 
cyber hornets, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so to speak, except they're analog hornets. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have a numerous amount of stingers so that the defense of the hive can adjust appropriately to the relative threat of the attack. You know, mm -hmm. if you have um, a, a small animal, like let's say raccoon or whatever, that is trying to get to the honey, you can't have only one collective stinger of the hive because if you use it on that and then a bear comes along, you, you're in trouble and you're going to lose yeah. your honey. So, so you know, in, in the animal kingdom, we see, we see game theory everywhere and the mm -hmm. animals protect themselves in, in the appropriate amount. And it's very predictable. You know, lions show dominance of mm -hmm. who can control reproductive abilities in a territory of land. You know, that's why we say things are territorial. You know, mm -hmm. there are bird feeders on my front porch out here. It's like, you know, I have these hummingbirds and these, you know, cardinals and blue jays river. And all day they fly around each other and battle each other over the bird seed. Like literally all day, that's that's what they do. They mm -hmm. they either you know, make noises at each other, which is a projection of power saying, look at how strong I am. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the bird equivalent of the chimpanzee on its chest. Uh, or, or they fly against each other. And, you know, it's, um, you know, and, and the funny thing is no matter how many bird feeders we put out, because now we have multiple bird feeders out here. It's like, if you have two birds competing over a bird feeder, you know, our human, we, we want to say, oh, we'll just put up a second bird feeder in their share. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, that's not how it works. <laughs> you put up a second bird feeder, and the first bird now just has two feet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's the whole idea. Money trends to one. And, and that's the whole idea of game theory is that, you know, if you have, if you give a hundred people a quarter, you know, a coin to toss and the flip coin, the winner of that coin toss gets all the resources of the loser. You, you do that enough. And eventually one person ends up with all the resources. That's mm -hmm. pro distribution, you know, that, mm -hmm. um, you know, lots of ways we can go into that. But when it comes to Bitcoin specifically, how does it leverage game theory in the way that's advantageous to everyone involved, where it doesn't mm. evolve into that zero-sum game? Um, I, I would say, again, if you can centralize money, money eventually will be centralized because eventually someone will come along with the ability to centralize it and do mm. that because they mm -hmm. can benefit at a disproportional advantage of everyone else. If we... If we think, you know, most people criticize Bitcoin and say, what's Bitcoin backed by? I would say, what's the dollar backed by? Mm, right. The dollar is backed by a gun. At the end of the day, that's what it's backed by. You know, and that's not some libertarian mumbo jumbo of saying, oh, we got to, you know, you know, kumbaya or whatever. No, that's that's just what it is. Mm. You know, and that's not that's not inherently evil because that's the best form of technology you've had up to this point. But that is what it is. The dollar mm. is backed by the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the paperwork, and, and the promises, let's say, the promissory energy of the United States. And what is the United mm -hmm. States backed by? Well, it's backed by the barrel of a gun. And what is that gun backed by? It's backed by the size of our mm -hmm. economy. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what's that backed by? It's backed by the intellectual capital, the intellectual energy, and the natural resources of the United States. And so, what is the dollar backed by? It's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States promises that they will enforce with that barrel of a gun, and they'll be able to make the guns and the bullets as a function of mm -hmm. size of the economy. And so what is the incentive structure right now? What is the game theory right now? Well, the game theory is control the money and give other people money that is a lower net cost to you than it is to them. And in exchange, acquire their natural resources. You know, essentially what the United States has done, especially the last 80 years or so, is we export dollars and we import resources. We've had a negative trade deficit since 1975, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's almost half a century now that we've basically exported more dollars uh, than right. 
you know, that, that we brought it. And so we, we basically go to these other nations and we acquire their resources at a discount to us. You know, I'm in Michigan. If I were to drive over to the border to Canada, even for the Canadians, you know, sorry for the Canadians listening, but, you know, if I take my dollars and I spend them in Canada, I am benefiting very, very tiny amount mm. at more or less the expense to Canadians because they are using dollars that have been down the line for my use. And so what's the game mm. theory? The game theory is control the money at all costs and enforce other people to use that money because it's a direct benefit to you. Right. And if that paradigm is challenged, then it, it's not a matter of blue or red. It's not a matter of democracy or communism. The, the, the only advantageous move from a game theory perspective is if they refuse to use the dollar, then the gun has to come out. You know, mm-hmm. if say a small nation in the Middle East says we don't want to use your dollar anymore, we're gonna, you know, it's like okay, what's what's going to happen? America's going to come in. We say we want your oil. <laughs> we're yeah. going to manipulate that. You know, if you look at Central America, you know, all the Central American nations that are forced to use the dollar's legal tender, you know, it it it's very similar. You know, we want to have the global standard be the U.S. dollar because that mm. is an advantageous benefit to us. And that's not some anti-patriotism, anti-American rhetoric. That is just the simple game theory. If it was China, they do the same thing. Putin yeah. would do the same thing. Yeah. You know, and that's what we've seen. And that's um, what I talk about in my videos and my Twitter a lot is using those historical examples. Before America, you had the British, the Germans, the Portuguese, the Dutch, uh, you know, the Chinese like half a dozen times, uh, yeah. all the way back to the Romans, the Egyptians, you know, the Ottomans, you know, any empire that has that. It's inevitable result of monopolizing money and having that centralized control. And so what, what's the comparison with Bitcoin? Well, what backs Bitcoin? Well, what backs Bitcoin, the, the energy that backs Bitcoin is not the potential force of a gun or the force of a gun itself. What backs Bitcoin is essentially the electricity. You know, you, you have at the base at the base level, and this is what Henry Ford predicted uh, and, and Tesla and, and others, they predict this, you know, looking forward at the information age, you know, they, they predicted that eventually we'd be able to convert the natural wealth of the world into a form of energy and then that energy would be able to be communicated, you know, turned into information that information should be able to be communicated throughout the world virtually mm-hmm. instantly. And then, you know, and then we have a form of money that is backed by that, you know, Ford predicted that this new kind of money, this new kind of thinking would be the largest factories, the, the largest power plants in the world. You know, Tesla said that it would, you know, reduce wars or end wars, you know, and mm-hmm. Ford said the same thing. And, that's basically what we have. We've had this revolution the last century or so where now we can turn natural wealth, coal, solar, nuclear, whatever, into electricity. So like a base layer. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we can turn that electricity into computing power. Like we're talking right now mm-hmm. via the computer, ones and zeros. We're converting electricity. My computer's plugged into the wall right here. You know, some power plants turning some coal somewhere into electricity. That electricity has been turning to information. And then on top of that, we're communicating that information over the internet. Mm. And now finally, on top of that, we, we have this Bitcoin thing, or this immutable scarcity thing that's backed by the electricity and the computational power behind mm. it. And so what, what's the, <laughs> to your joke earlier about how people that um, criticize Bitcoiners like, oh, it's just game theory. It's like, yeah, it is. You know, mm. the, the political currency unit regime has to get worse. There is no scenario in which it gets better because if your incentive structure is bigger gun diplomacy of who has the biggest gun, mm. like it's just a matter of time until another gun appears and it gets bigger 
or yours mm-hmm. gets smaller, or however the ratio changes, nothing is static. Nothing is static in the world. So eventually that paradigm is going to change. And when we can't communicate with our constitution, when we can't communicate with our political reasoning, we have to default to the level below. What's the level below? Mm. You know, raw power. Barrels. Yeah, raw power. Mm. And yeah. the best way to exert that raw power is not to show up with, uh, you know, 100 tons of gold. The better form of raw power is a gun. And so, yeah, political currency systems have to decline. And, and we're seeing that, that yeah. the system begins to cannibalize itself as we are incentivized away from productivity and towards management we tax ourselves to death and we manipulate ourselves exponentially more and as that productivity shrinks aka the energy to be able to feed the gun shrinks we emphasize use on the gun you know we have more proxy wars we have more influence i mean that's that's what russia is doing right now you know their demographics are um on decline and they have various problems of their own and they've basically invaded Ukraine in in an attempt to regain that influence. And then, you know, of course we cut them out from SWIFT and everything like that. We're weaponizing a currency and yeah. a political currency whose power is the political energy of the state weaponizing that power against other states. They are undermining their own currency. Right. And so it's not, it's not a speculation that the dollar has to get worse and that Bitcoin's going to overtake it. Like mm. in a very real sense, if you understand the game theory, it's inevitable. No. And people say, you know, what happens when the government bans Bitcoin? They're like, they will. <laughs> they, yeah. they will ban it. But to use the metaphor of the ships earlier, that's not saying that the captain of the Titanic is going to ban lifeboats. It, it's yeah. It, yeah. it's like they're, they're going to encage you on the ship as it goes down. You know, they're not yeah. going to ban Bitcoin and then everyone will cheer and kumbaya and we'll all buy bonds and fund the government. It's like, no, yeah. they'll stop you from buying Bitcoin because if you're playing a game of chess and there is no more good move for you. The only good move is to stop the freedom of movement. Stop the people from being able to move on the ship because they're just going to choose a lifeboat every single time. Stop right. the chess pieces from being able to move. So anyway, I, I've gone on a long rant there, but the the point of the game theory here is that the, if Bitcoin is this algorithm that cuts humans out of the loop, it is inherently better than an incentive structure that requires humans that is also backed by political promises and the barrel of a gun. And that's not some anti-status point. That's just the reality of that's how yeah. it's going to happen. And that's why it's important for pe- people to get off zero. Because if you don't, like, you know, e- either you will buy Bitcoin or the longer you wait to buy Bitcoin, the probability goes up that you will not be able to buy Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I, that's not a problem with Bitcoin. As some people hearing that would think that's a problem with Bitcoin. That's a problem of your current system. Yeah. Like, it's going to cannibalize itself either way. It's just, thankfully, we have this, lifeboat now yeah and it's a problem for you if you don't have access to the lifeboat when the lifeboats become more scarce or the access is is restricted i think it was mao that said all political power emanates from the barrel of a gun and so it is interesting again it's almost the way i think about this typically is we are just we life but we specifically humans we're organisms that are constantly responding to incentives, right? That's how what's determining, largely determining our behavior. Um, obviously, it's not a deterministic relationship, but observed over the broadest patterns of how humans move and organize themselves, it, it's damn near deterministic, right? People are going to do whatever's profitable for them. And so just by, I guess, Bitcoin just radically lowering the cost of defending your purchasing power, like I don't, 
we don't need the U.S. military and aircraft carriers and all of these things to preserve the integrity of the U.S. dollar. <laughs> uh, we don't have to be a global imperialist. You can just have this very simple wheel-like technology that makes it very cheap to protect your purchasing power from theft, debasement, dilution. And so all of a sudden, game theoretically, the gun becomes much less useful, right? You because you can't steal with it. You can't use it to steal from others or impose the use of a national currency when people have recourse to this lifeboat we call Bitcoin. So game theoretically, we would expect politics and and other forms of organized violence and coercion to just decline, right? They're just they're less profitable activities for humans. And that is a radical thought because all of a sudden statism itself is called into question. It's like, what does that world look like on a Bitcoin standard? Do we have states? Uh, if we do, they're obviously going to be less coercive because coercion is not as profitable. So even if they wanted to be coercive, they couldn't fund the coercion as adequately as they do today. So um, yeah, it, your, your head almost explodes when you get into the game, game theory aspects of Bitcoin. Um, it, it really does. And, and for me, it's it's also recognizing that it's not a matter of intelligence. You know, if if we go back to the bees, it's like, okay, you have the abstract power being the colors on, on their bodies. You know, that's like mm-hmm. the abstract communication, the same way right. we have the constitution or pieces of paper. And the stinger is the gun, the stinger is the barrel. So, yeah. and it's like, if you gave bees that option of bees, the ability to defend their hive in a nonviolent manner, eventually beehives would trend towards that. You know, because if you can get rid of the bear without having your own bees die as they sting the bear, it's like, of course, you're going to choose that. And so, yeah. you know, that that's the funny thing that it's not like Bitcoin causes humans to be more intelligent, or whatever, per se. It's just that it negates the need for it. Yeah. And it, I, I think it was Elon Musk or, or I, I think actually, no, I think it's Elon Musk quoting someone else. But there's a quote that the best system in engineering is the one that's not required. You know, like mm. the, 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 the thing that's redundant. And I think that's really what we're looking at here, that Bitcoin makes the redundancy of the barrel of a gun apparent and it mm. just isn't useful anymore. Right. Yeah. Which is super exciting. Right. It's like people always have talked about world peace, right? Like, oh, what all all the Miss Universes, what do they say they want? What's one thing you could do for the world? Like world peace. Obviously, I mean, it's a utopic thing. We'll never get there, but it seems like the one practical engineering solution we can implement is just make coercion, compulsion, violence less profitable and therefore less prevalent. Uh, I don't, I can't think of anything else we can do about that. So Bitcoin is a radical step in that direction. And we've had other steps in that direction, right? You mentioned the constitution, the ideals of life, liberty, property. Uh, you could argue, you know, democracy to some extent, liberal democracy has, has contributed as a step in that direction, although there's arguments for and against, but, um, (laughs) it's, yeah, it's very fascinating to look at it through that lens. So this is a theme that has come up for you in a lot of your interviews that, which is segues nicely from this point that we have less in common now with the future than we do with the past due to this radical technological advancement. Can you expand upon that? Because that's a strange thought for people, right? It's it's very easy to just look out on the world and be like, oh, this is the way things are. And most people do sort of take the status quo for granted, thinking this is the way things are. This is the way things will continue to be. 
But if you actually study history, it's anything but that. Like we do have long periods where things can be somewhat the same, but then there are these punctuated equilibrium or equilibria of radical change, right? In short amounts of time and almost always related to, te to technology. So how do you describe that for people? Like the idea of having less in common with the future than we do with the past? No. Well, like I said before, I've always loved history and I've always enjoying thinking about like, wow, this person was born, you know, the year this person was born, this person lived at the same time. You know, I've always found studying those timelines interesting when I was little and I never mm -hmm. could put my finger on why. And not the moment, but a major moment for me, I've not told this story online, I don't think before, but I was in Israel last December and uh, I, I was at the Sea of Galilee actually. And I just, I just was sitting and looking over the sea because, you know, I, obviously the Sea of Galilee, Jesus lived there for three years, that's that's documented historically. Capernaum um, is there, you know, that's where Jesus walked in water, um, if you, you know, believe in Testament and everything. And so I, I was just sitting there enjoying that moment and, and enjoying the evening. And, you know, there are all these city lights around around the, the sea there. And it occurred to me finally why I found history so fascinating and comparing those timelines. It, it's because the Sea of Galilee has had more has had a larger visual change in its appearance in the last hundred years than the hundred years before that, because a hundred years ago there weren't light bulbs, but a hundred mm -hmm. years before that there were there wasn't nearly as metal settlement there wasn't nearly as much settlement then as there was a hundred mm -hmm. years later from then, or, aka a hundred years ago from now. And I just thought back and back, and I was like, oh well, it's so obvious. It's so obvious that if you go from the time of Jesus to the time of today, you know, the last two thousand years or so, the visual appearance of the Sea of Galilee has changed exponentially over that period of time as population is exponential mm -hmm. and as technology is exponential and people you know like it's like okay thinking back even bigger why is human population exponential it's exponential because we're able to innovate exponentially you know mm -hmm. we could not feed eight billion people on the planet with stone age technology you you, you just can't do it you know that and and this is not to get too much down a rabbit hole, this this is one of the problems with overpopulation theories and, and alarmism mm -hmm. is that you know we're projecting future populations atop of current technology. Right. And you're not going to solve enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's that's one of the big disconnects there. But anyway, I, I was sitting there on, on the Sea Galley and I was just thinking about that. And it, you know, the thoughts percolate more over time. And it just became obvious to me that okay, we have less to come with the future than the past. You know, right now the year is 2023. I forget the year we first discovered, well, not discovered galaxies, but we identified what galaxies were. And it was mm. roughly 100 years ago, you know, so for 4,000 years, we didn't know what a galaxy was, that we were in a galaxy, you know, we had no idea mm -hmm. until 100 years ago. And now we have multiple pictures of black holes, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> you know, like our entire understanding of gravity with those um, special and general theories of relativity our understanding of galaxies, you know, our whole scientific knowledge has exploded in exponential form. And the majority of books that have been written have been written in the last hundred years. Uh, the majority of entertainment, obviously the entirety of movies, the, the majority of photographs, you know, when it comes to every way to measure human achievements or human progress or human innovation or human discovery, in every single way, there has been more change in the last hundred years than the hundred years before that. And then, you know, back and back and back, everything's just that exponential function. And so that's pretty undeniable. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. that's pretty objective. Like, it's really hard to argue that, you know, we have 
you know, it's really hard to debate that. You know, if you have a man, let's say my age, 24 years old, and you're 19, 23, like what was their life? Well, they probably fought in World War One. They were probably in the trenches for a few months mm -hmm. or a few years. Um, they did not have a tenth of the medicines I have access to now. They were not able to talk to Robert Breedlove on a computer instantaneously while we're in two different countries. It's like mm -hmm. the whole idea of having a, two people having a conversation in different countries never happened yeah. until now. And now I can be literally on Twitter and talk to people from 20 different countries a day. Yeah. But but whether it be a text or 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 video, you know. So yeah. the the 24 year old Luke Royals from 1923 has more in common technologically speaking with the person 2000 years before him at the time mm. of Jesus. Hmm. You know, I mean him, he was in World War 1 was probably and probably every generation of men before him experienced some degree of combat or revolution or, or you know something like that. Mm -hmm. And my generation, you know, Lord really um, mm -hmm. hopefully I never experienced combat. You know, yeah. and it's like you know, so to, no matter what lens you look at, the point I'm making is that in every way, life is completely different. And the simple, the simple idea I proposed on Twitter, and I'm not the first one to think of this, but I, I think I put it, I think I articulated it very well. But the simple idea is that why should we expect that to stop? Yeah. Like a hundred years from now, our baseline assumption, not our, not our end of the bell curve fringe possibility, our baseline assumption for a hundred years from today in the year 2123 mm. should be that basically every form of technology we use today should be completely mm. obsolete. That should be our mm. baseline assumption. That that's, that's not the optimistic assumption. It's not the pessimistic assumption. That's, that's what we should assume mm -hmm. because every other hundred year period, that's exactly what it's been. Mm. And the pessimistic, the pessimistic worldview is to assume that the technology we use in the future is the same as today because that would have required such a slowdown in population growth, such a slowdown in innovation, such dramatic diminishing returns in innovation that probably there have been rural wars or massive famines, you know, some sort of catastrophe has occurred. You know, for us to for us to stay even, the negative force on humanity to stop the momentum would be so great, it would be cataclysmic or or at least very painful to live through. And so yeah. to me, that became an obvious baseline assumption. We have less in common with the future than the past. And that's true for an interval, you know. 100 years from now, 50 years from now, and this is a funny side note, it's like, you know, I'm 24 years old. What if in the next 50 years we have life extension technologies or whatever mm -hmm. and people live to be, you know, what if we are in the rare period now where before my generation, people rarely lived over 100 years old. And perhaps my generation, or if not my generation, my kid's generation, living over 100 years old is common. Yeah. And I happen to be the weird middle narrow slice generation where the people that where i've been born into a world where living over 100 is rare and i'll probably die in a world where living over 100 years old is common and like i'll right. be the only generation like that you know past yeah. future yeah it, it, and so and so that thinking of history in terms of those slices is fascinating to me you know you could think of that in terms of artificial intelligence you mm -hmm. can think of that in terms of computers you know i mean again looking at a past example like there's a very narrow narrow window when the printing press exists and the majority of people get their scripture reading from the Catholic church. Like it's mm, a very right, narrow right. period. And to live in that period is a blessing. And it's, mm. it's hard to stop thinking about. It. It's like, wow, yeah. I live in the history. The printing press exists. This is going to be such a big deal. 
again, it solves problems we can't even conceptualize. Like, who yeah. wants to printing press? You know, 95% of people can't read. It's like, because yeah. it's going to make everyone literate. Right, right, right. And, the and incentives so the changed way, again. Yeah, it's yeah, a great point. The incentives change changed again. literacy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No one's incentivized to learn to read. You know, books were so valuable. They were chained to library desks or whatever. Yeah. You know, and, and anyway, to bring it back to Bitcoin, I think that's basically where we are with Bitcoin, that we're in this weird, rare period maybe 30 years, 40 years, you know, maybe 20 years. I don't know, but probably not 20 years, but we're in this narrow period in, in history where that monetary singularity, quote unquote, or that perfect wheel or that perfect money exists. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, people are still using a perfect money. Right. You know, our, our baseline assumption should be that in a hundred years, we are not using political currency units. We are not using bonds or real estate mm-hmm. or stocks or oil or gold as a form of monetary savings. Yeah. You, you you can't have a spacefaring civilization that has interest rates determined by a board of 10 lawyers. You know, it, they're, they're incompatible. You can't have yeah. a world uh, of computers run on the back of the horse. So yeah. anyway, I, I, I get quite passionate, excited about that, but I, I think that really opens people's minds and gets them thinking about the future that if Bitcoin is this wheel, as you wonderfully put earlier, that it, it is, ideally positioned for whatever train it's on. Likewise, Bitcoin is the ideal asset positioned for every technological innovation. You know, if artificial intelligence is coming to the degree many people think it is, you don't hedge against that by buying stock in AI companies. You mm-hmm. hedge against that by buying that perfect wheel that yeah. is going to be able to be resistant against that. And no matter inflation, deflation, hyperinflation, hyperdeflation, Bitcoin is perfectly positioned. I, I think for or at least even if it's not perfectly positioned, it's the best bet yeah. in every position. Yeah. The most the most certain thing you can own in a world where ownership is highly uncertain, right? Based on political turmoil and whatnot. And that the the quote that jumped to mind as you're describing that, right? That we have less in common with we have less in common with the future than the past due to exponent due to exponential change in technology is uh i don't know who said this but he said the greatest human shortcoming is our inability to understand the exponential function that we're just that not might be wired. Einstein. yeah we're just not yeah. wired to think in exponents right and you see this with innovation so the malthusians that are always saying oh we're gonna overpopulate and run out of food and we're all gonna die and what actually happens? Well, innovation outpaces that exponentially, and we have more food surplus today with a higher population than we've ever had in human history. Right? Uh, virology is another example. When the whole pandemic situation started, a lot of people in the West think, "Oh, that's in China. That's not going to be here." And then, what? Two, three weeks later, it's all over the world. Yeah. Um, and you know, I would say Bitcoin fits that bill too because it has this exponential decay function and its supply issuance. Every four years, you're cutting it in half such that I think before the end of the 21st century, we're mining like one Bitcoin per year, right? We're mining six and a quarter Bitcoin every 10 minutes today. And by, I think it's near the year 2100, it drops to less than a Bitcoin a year. So it's really hard for the, the human mind to get their head around that. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. 
For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a coin join. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make coin joins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So exponential change, humans, our inability to deal with exponents, um, you know, I guess really blinds us to how much the future can change and how quickly it can change. Um, this maybe relates to people's general fear. Uh, let's say, let's say no coiners, people that do not have any Bitcoin. There's this general anxiety that, Oh, I'm too late to Bitcoin, right? It's already gone from zero to $30,000. How much higher could it possibly go? Um, is that, are, are we too late to Bitcoin? And, and how do you wrestle with that, that anxiety from no corners? Yeah. Uh, okay. It, regarding your point of exponential functions, that goes hand in hand with the other question of, are we too late to Bitcoin? I, I think first regarding the exponential functions, I think, again, we've less come with the future in the past and for the entirety of human history, we have had quasi-scarce or, or quasi-finite assets. You know, gold is finite, but we can just get more gold. Real mm -hmm. estate is scarce, but the primary source of real estate scarcity is government regulation. We can always change that to our benefit. Mm -hmm. So because we've not seen actual finite scarcity before, we're trying to overlay our understanding of prices going up for those things onto, onto Bitcoin. You know, and so, you know, in real estate, we think in terms of doubling, whereas with Bitcoin, we should think in terms of a thousand X or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. And so I, I think that's the first thing to decompress for someone that has that fear is that first part of what you said about humans inability to comprehend exponential functions. Like we are horrible at it. You know, I mean, even let's take stocks. The stock market has gone up, I think, 23 X in the last 40 years. Like so mm -hmm. stocks are quasi scarce. And yet even that goes up dramatically like it looks like a parabolic chart if you zoom out to the 1950s like it's crazy um, but bitcoin is infinitely more scarce than the u.s stock market mm -hmm. and so then that segues into your second point about are we too late to bitcoin you know it, no pe people are not too late because with a political currency unit system as the productivity of the human race increases the game theory incentive for that political institution is to dilute their money to meet that productivity. Because mm. let's say productivity is here. There's this many currency units that reflect that productivity. Productivity goes up. Well, now you have free range to debase all yeah. that. 
right. you know, because it's the same house, but now yeah. you, you can have this house price be the same in nominal terms, even though real terms have fallen, and you've just right. debased onto your bondholders, onto your cash yeah. holders. And so comparing that with Bitcoin is that it's always capped and that productivity goes up indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't even want to be an optimist, if you just want to be a realist and assume baseline 100 years from today, there's going to be much more productivity, many more humans and much more prosperity mm-hmm. than there is today in the year 2023. And if we assume that Bitcoin is what we think it is, I mean, it seems very probable to me. It's been around for a decade and a half now and it's mm-hmm. you know never failed. Um, <laughs> not for any anyone, but you know, give me mm-hmm. give me any other system that's been able to do that. Mm-hmm. That then to me it becomes obvious that as long as humanity continues to survive, and as long as you have any optimism on the future, then it's never too late to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, Bitcoin is a, again money is a technology that prices in all the forms of technology, and so buying Bitcoin, you're basically going long the human race in the same way that you're buying the S and P 500 to go long the American corporate world. Mm. You, you know, like Bitcoin is so much better. Like that's what people understand. Bitcoin is lower risk than that. When you buy, you know, if you have the right time horizon, of course, obviously people hate me for saying that and they do hate me for saying that. But when you buy the American stock market, all you're doing is you're going long America's corporate sector, which yeah. is highly dependent on easy monetary policy from the Fed. That's mm-hmm. all you're doing. When you go long Bitcoin, you go long literally every single human being, every single innovation, every single discovery, every single invention of the past, the present, and the future. Mm-hmm. Like that's a lot lower risk mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know there are dozens of ways. And I think Sailor has 28. I think other people have like 30 or 40. There are dozens of ways of why the stocks and the real estate and all that it has that kind of high risk. So mm-hmm. it's never too late. And the reason because it's never too late, and the reason because Bitcoin's price appreciation mm-hmm. is so potent is because it's that lower risk system. And again, mm. people hearing that think, oh, you're just saying Bitcoin's low risk, you know, because your thesis of Bitcoin skyrocketing to the moon is, is dead or whatever, you know, they think that mm. it's made up as an excuse where it's like, no, that's the whole prerequisite. The reason Bitcoin has the potential to do so much more than anything else we've seen in the past is because it has that substantially lower risk and everything else, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's like, okay, how much Bitcoin should I buy? Well, you know, it's like, we're filming this in 2023 here, August of 2023. Eight months is the halving. You know, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. a few minutes ago about the six Bitcoin being mine. Okay, you know, do you know how many sats there are per human per day of issuance in eight months? I, I guess I'm asking you as well as everyone watching. You know, most people probably wouldn't have a guess. But the answer is six. In eight months, there are six Satoshis being issued on the Bitcoin's network per human per day. And so you can buy how many? 3,600 for a single dollar. So like a cup of coffee is what? 15,000. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. I mean, if you think long, if you think long enough in the future, that's probably what's going to happen that the majority of Bitcoin out there and being held and the majority of Bitcoin out there being able to be exchanged will probably be uh, from the Bitcoins that are being issued. You know, that's mm. often said that, you know, in 100 years, roughly, or no, year 2109, I think. So more like 90 years is 37 sats block award, um, you know, and it's like, yeah, you can think about that. Like, wow, 37 sats is generational wealth, but it's like eight months, six sats a person a day. Okay, that's how many sats in a year? That's like 1800 sats a year per human per day, you know, <laughs> That's 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 not a lot. So no, you're absolutely not too late since you can buy that many for like 
two quarters. <laughs> and and I, I think you didn't ask this, but I think something worthy to say there too is that people hear that and they think, oh, well, you're just salivating at the potential of everyone else to be much poorer than you are. You have so many more stats than they do. You're just relishing in your wealth inequality. Yeah. And I, I would say that's fundamentally wrong. I think, again, that's having the fiat mindset. I think the better way to view it is that the average person in the future, if we're not pessimistic, not optimistic, if we're just realistic, the average person in the future will have much more prosperity than we could possibly imagine. Mm. And yet they will have, you know, how many sats? Like thousands, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe 10, 20, 30,000 sats a person. I mean, you don't do the mm. math, you know, it's, it's, it's truly astounding. The, the, the sheer scarcity of sats per humans today mm-hmm. and has, and sats per human in the future. And to think that there's only going to be more prosperity priced in terms of those things, you know, it, it mm. sounds, it sounds like someone um, would say just as hype, but then if we think backwards from first principles, again, if the people from a hundred years ago have more in common with the Romans than we do today, you know, if you mm. went back to ancient Rome and that this is ultimately the reason um, why I care about talking about Bitcoin. We are currently in ancient Rome. There are 21 million gold coins in circulation across the entire planet, millions of which have been lost. And like I'm out there in my tunic or whatever, shouting at people that hmm. by the time your kids are your age, we are going to be a 1950s America where we're going to have black and white TV. And we're going to have, you know, um, planes, you know, we're about to land at man on the moon or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. It's like, you know, the amount of change that's coming is going to be so dramatic. It's like your career is going to not only go away, but it's going to cycle through multiple tech, revolutions within the rest of your career than your children's career. It's like the college education you're getting, the the thing is you're saving it. You're saving an oxen and olive oil. And in a couple of decades, you're going to be saving in the S&P 500. It's like, what's the S&P? You know, it's, yeah. we're in that ancient world and we're trying to explain the coming future world to them. And they're like, oh, wow, their mind's blown. And then you say, yeah. Then after we get to 1950s America, then you have, the computer, the internet, and the digital revolution, and everything else that's happened since then, and so that's 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 basically the way you think about Bitcoin. That you're in the ancient mm-hmm. world. There's 21 million gold coins, and all that prosperity that we're describing in the next few decades, in that next century or so, is very likely going to be priced in terms of that Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so, are people too late to Bitcoin? No, absolutely not. And I, I think that comes from a fiat mindset. I don't think people that ask that are serious people per se, but I. I do think that needs to be corrected. I've met mm. so many people that say, I bought Bitcoin at $10 and I sold it at $1,000. Or I bought Bitcoin at $5,000 and I sold it at $15,000. I tripled my money. And it's mm. like, you know, it's, I, I don't know if you want me to get into the black hole singularity metaphor, but, you know, that's basically what it is. It's like you're jumping out of the black hole just to fall in again at a higher price. You know, mm. if, with mm-hmm. Bitcoin, mm-hmm. if if you're, or, or let, let's say the boat metaphor, you know, if the price of light boats is designed to go up forever, both as number one, the mm. Titanic sinks, but also number two, as the lifeboats grow, you know, the lifeboats get bigger, the lifeboats get better. There's more people in the lifeboats, you know, the value of those lifeboats in relation to the sinking ship goes up exponentially. It's like, mm-hmm. why on earth would you take profits in terms of that seat of the lifeboat to get back on the ship? Like it, it's right. Right. nonsensical, right. you know? And, yes. and so in, in the same way, Again, earlier, like the bell curve, you know, the people over here are bullish on Bitcoin to 100,000, yeah. and they'll cash out and sell. Yeah. And you have the crazy people like Robert Breedlove and Luke Broyles that are like, yeah, Bitcoin's going to 10 million or $100 million. 
and that's bearish. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, I'll never sell. It, to, to people, it doesn't make any sense because yeah. they're thinking of the locomotive in terms of horses. It doesn't make that's any right. comprehensive. It's the denominator. It's the denominator. Yeah. It's the dollar denominator. It's when the understanding that there's so many memes about this, right? There's the Matrix meme where it's Morpheus talking to Neo. It's like, so you're telling me one day I can sell my Bitcoin for $100 million? And Morpheus is like, no, I'm telling you, Neo, when you're ready, you won't have to. It's like the frame of the US dollar is what's going away. So even when we say Bitcoin goes $100 million, we're not saying that you're going to want to sell it at that point for $100 million. It's like the US dollar is on its path to irrelevance in that situation. There's going to come a point where pricing things in US dollars just won't make any sense anymore. Just like pricing things in any, any hyperinflating currency eventually doesn't make any sense and they get repriced into something that's not hyperinflating. And the weird thing about Bitcoin is that everything hyperinflates against Bitcoin. So at some point you shift your frame from dollars or whatever currency to Bitcoin out of necessity. You can't, there's no other way around it, right? It is it is the lifeboat to to draw on our analogy. Another way I put this is that um, you know people often accuse Bitcoin of being a pump and dump scheme, but there is no better asset to dump it into. There is no better asset. So Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin? It's a pump scheme. It just pumps. That's what it does. It just goes up against goods and services forever because it's absolutely scarce. Yeah, and nothing else and, like and, that exists. And I think. The point to add there that I, I fully agree with that, that it's a pump scheme but i think people are hesitant against it because they're used to ponzi schemes and ponzi schemes are manipulation tactics by humans yeah and bitcoin is not that because it's not controlled by humans and it's so immune to the, manipulation the pump exactly yeah. and so the pump and bitcoin's pump scheme is that the scheme is the whole global economy the, yeah. the pump that causes bitcoin's pump is the total cumulative innovation and progress Yes. Of, of of the human race that's that's the pump that causes bitcoin's pump right. scheme it's not some twisted metric that yes. forces bitcoin to go up and that, i think that's what people misunderstand yeah yeah no it's a great one it's a it's a yeah pump has a very negative manipulative connotation but what we're saying here is that all successful entrepreneurial efforts are accretive to bitcoin right so everything that improves human productivity improves the purchasing power of the hardest money in the world and the hardest money in the world is Bitcoin. Um, I like to, you were describing like, and this gets into Jeff Booth's work a little bit, the debasing of currency, right? So as productivity goes up, all of a sudden there's this additional purchasing power for a central bank to harvest or steal through the debasement of the currency. And people won't even, they'll be none the wiser, right? If productivity goes up, prices should have gone down. But if you print just enough money to keep prices even or, or better yet, target your 2% inflation as they tend to do, then people are none the wiser or they don't feel the pain as much. But you get in a very, and when you consider this in combination with the fiat incentives for debt accumulation, right? When currency is being debased, every market actor is incentivized to borrow strong dollars, pay back weaker dollars. So we get massive debt accumulation as we see in the world today, 350% plus global debt to GDP you end up with this irreconcilable conflict of debasement or theft needing to outpace innovation. And if innovation is moving exponentially, as we've described, then obviously that can't go on forever, right? At some point, the de if debasement goes exponential, that is by definition hyperinflation. So when the thing hyperinflates and it's no longer useful, it's no longer meaningful, then people move out of the hyperinflating money into the money that is not hyperinflating. And so as political money self-destructs, 
we get this really bad short-term problem, right? Hyperinflation, namely, like it's painful. It's the economy has to adjust and, you know, just study any hyperinflation. It's a really bad situation. People go crazy. You can't trust each other. You can't engage in long-term trade. You can't save. All these really bad consequences. But the long-term consequence of that is really good with Bitcoin. Because after these things die in hyperinflation, well, you've reset to a Bitcoin standard where price signals are honest, right? People are disincentivized from stealing from one another. The the political barrel of the bunt of a gun is game theoretically less useful in all of these things we've described. And so then you're in this world where you hold Bitcoin. All you have to do is hold Bitcoin as savings and you're effectively holding a non-counterparty index fund on all successful entrepreneurial efforts from now until forever. Like it's it's a mind it's a mind-blowing asset, right? There's nothing like like gold. Gold is the closest thing we've ever had to that. It's like just hold gold over time and no matter what's happening politically around you, um the gold's going to be valuable, right? And the gold's going to continue to be more valuable as humans become more productive. Problem with gold, of course, is that it has all these vulnerabilities. Um, you know, you can mine the ocean floor, you can mine an asteroid, you can make it in a lab, it can be physically stolen from you. And Bitcoin just sort of obviates all of that. And you end up with this perfect, pristine asset that appreciates in tandem with human knowledge and productivity. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty strong argument. They were not late <laughs> to Bitcoin, still, still yes. very early, I would say. And, and I think. Yeah, I, I think it's still very early and amusing. I've had a thought I've had. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. Is that people either learn and change their behavior from pain and curiosity, and we happen to be again that very narrow window in history where the majority of people that have learned about Bitcoin has been through curiosity, not through pain. And I do mm. think most people will not get off zero. They will not get that lifeboat. They will not buy Bitcoin until the pain has become so insurmountable. You know, at two yeah. percent inflation, the pain is there, but it's not bad enough that. People are in panic mode um, when, when it comes to their monetary security. And so I think the majority of pain that is coming is not, it's not from people's pain of, oh, I wish I bought Bitcoin when it was cheaper. I think the majority of the pain is going to be from people that bought Bitcoin, sold it for 10x higher, and then, mm. you know, it goes 1,000x whatever. I think that's right. where most of the pain is. And so, you know, I, thinking on a shorter term here, I think the biggest telling factor that we're very early is that if we assume that the majority of people that experience that pain and that hard lesson through Bitcoin are people mm. that buy it, hold it for a year and then sell it for a 10 X or whatever, you know, most of that people haven't even bought, you know? And so I, I think if that assumption is true, then I think by that alone, that just shows how early we are that yeah. most people are yet to put their hand on the off on the hot stove to mm -hmm. then, take it off and then learn the lesson and then better understand it. You know, we haven't even gotten to that point. And I think that's people have trouble understanding. It's like $10 million of Bitcoin is not a hyper Bitcoinized price. That's still yes. like 90, 95% of the world hasn't even begun to touch the hot stove and learn the lesson so that five years later, they actually can understand and allocate properly to Bitcoin. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And just question your frame of reference. If you're only thinking in terms of dollars, then maybe there's another frame to which to perceive the world through which to perceive the world. Well, um, in, in Lira, I, I was ahead. just going to say, in, in Lira, Bitcoin is 800,000. You know, in, in the Lebanese pound, it's 400 million. Officially and, and unofficially, it's more like 4 billion. So it's like, 
I, I made a video on that recently and some people were like, oh, Luke, that's so dumb. We're not, you know, stop saying that that's a cheap tactic. And it's like, no, it's not a cheap tactic. Why would I value Bitcoin in Lira or Peso or Pound? And why would I value it in dollar? You know, it's, you wouldn't say a stock market is going up in terms of a hyperinflationary currency because you're saying, oh, well, your unit of measures corrupted. It's like, yeah, I'd say the same thing with the dollar. It's it's a complete oxymoron. Yeah, it's a, it's tricky, right? We don't stop to consider the aperture through which we're looking at the world often. And money is one of those very important apertures. We're all conditioned and accustomed to looking at the world through dollars. Most of us, obviously, different countries, different currencies. But that frame of reference is what is being jeopardized by the existence of Bitcoin. So you have to kind of take off the glasses through which you're looking at the world and examine the glasses themselves. And it's it's a meta cognitive leap for a lot of people, but it's an important one if you're going to get your head around all this. Um, okay. I've kept you for long enough, I think, but I do want to ask you one last thing. You, are, you said you're making a documentary about Bitcoin and you know, we talked about this offline a little bit, but most docu documentaries don't adequately explain the problem. They sort of just focus on Bitcoin and Bitcoiners and, you know, the the phenomenon itself, typically explaining it from a technical standpoint. But it misses this deep macro historical economic problem of money printing in general, like the problems with money printing, the problems with the monopolization of money. Um, so what what is this documentary that you're making and what what are you trying to what's the unique angle you're trying to take on the explanation of this problem? Yeah, well, I, I fully agree with you. I've watched numerous Bitcoin documentaries. Uh, some are very good, um, others um, less so, uh, but but many are very good. But I do think there's a fundamental shortcoming there. Um, most of these documentaries are focusing either on individual people and their stories, or they're focusing on a controversy like, say, Mt. Gox and the Silk Road, uh, or they, as you said, have a lot of technical jargon and a, a lot of interviews, a lot of talking heads. The worry goes over people's heads. And I have a filmmaking background and I realized something has to be made that communicates this whole idea, this idea that we have less coming in the future than the past, this idea that the fundamental problem is the ability to centralize and monopolize money itself. The problem is not inflation. And the value proposition of Bitcoin is not as a hedge against inflation. The value proposition of Bitcoin is that it's a technological innovation that led to this discovery that is unlike anything we've understood in the past. And so, yeah, I, I'm trying to make this documentary. Obviously, it's extremely difficult to orange pill someone in 90 minutes, but hopefully the documentary is going to be concise and entertaining and educational enough that people enjoy it and walk away with a sense of like, oh, okay, this is not someone that's using a bunch of jargon and a bunch of hype words to get me to spend my money. This is someone that's trying to explain history and technological paradigms in a way I've never heard before. And they're emphasizing that the single most urgent and important technology I learn about immediately is Bitcoin for X, Y, and Z reasons. So that, that's the angle I'm trying to go for. Um, I, I don't know how quickly we'll finish. We're hoping to finish by the having, perhaps even earlier next year, depending how funding goes. Uh, but I've been promoting it since May for about a third of the way of raising the budget. We're trying to raise $20,000 to make it, which anyone watching that's been in the filmmaking world or made a documentary knows how cheap that is. <laughs> We're being very efficient um, with, with that and making the best thing we can. Uh, it's going to be about 90 minutes long, I believe. And uh, it, there are a few film festivals that we might be able to 
show it at and go to and it's going to be posted online for free too so really we're trying to make something that increases that adoption and you know hopefully if the movie gets a million views and two percent of the people that watch it become bitcoiners or, or at least bitcoin curious then that would mean that every dollar spent on the production results into one new bitcoiner and if that's the case then i'll feel very content and satisfied in the final product so um, so that's, that, that's the larger vision for the film. We're just trying to make something that educates people and helps them understand Bitcoin from that technological paradigm worldview, much like we've been speaking about in this discussion, and not the Bitcoin's about to pump up. You should buy some so yeah. you can get rich <laughs> thinking in fiat terms. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Lambos and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no Lambos. <laughs> that's great. Awesome. Well, I wish you luck with that endeavor. That sounds like a really important, important thing, right? Just people... As you said earlier, right, to explain the problem so well that the solution becomes obvious. I haven't seen a Bitcoin documentary that does that yet. So I hope yours is the one. Um, Luke, thank you for doing this. This is a lot of fun. I love these philosophical meanderings um, and very excited to see what Bitcoin does in the next few years. Where can people find you and your work on the Internet? They can find me primarily on Twitter or YouTube. Uh, a lot of people don't know of a YouTube account. I've been posting a lot there, um, actually. So I'm also a Noster. I uh, don't post there as much, but um, a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of my best content in the next six months is going to be on YouTube. So follow me on Twitter, subscribe to YouTube, you know, do all those wonderful things. And I hope I put out stuff that's of value to other people. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.